Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Imagine one of your grandparents or great-grandparents having met and fallen in love with the most successful TV star in 20th century America before that person was famous. Darren Strauss describes his new book, The Queen of Tuesday, as half-memoir, half-make-believe, and above all, a novel. A wonderfully written, richly drawn novel, I will add. The author joins us now via Zoom. Darren Strauss, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. The book opens in 1949 on the beach at Coney Island. Would you describe the event taking place? Yes, uh, and this is based on a true event. So there was a time when Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, bought a huge swath of land on Coney Island Beach, which is in New York City, the first amusement park in the country and and maybe the world. And so it was a very beautiful historic landmark. And Trump's father decided to tear down the landmark to build, I guess the best way to describe it is is crappy housing. (laughs) And so in order to blunt the criticism from the media, Trump's father threw a party on the beach and invited celebrities and real estate people. My grandfather was a real estate person. And at this party was Lucille Ball and a number of other celebrities. And so at the stroke of midnight, all the celebrities were uh, directed to throw brick through this glass and steel landmark to, to destroy it. But because it was celebrities in the stroke of midnight in a party, it was deemed a uh, picture-worthy event. And so they avoided the criticism and it just seemed like a glamorous party. And so that is the opening of the book where my grandfather and Lucille Ball meet. And I guess you could say fall in love, although it's it's probably more complicated than that. <laughs> but there really was a Fred Trump event where he invited glamorous people to take part in destruction as entertainment, even though it wasn't 1949, which you have artistic license to use or dramatic license. 
I tried to, yeah, I did take a number of liberties with this book, but I, but I found that a fascinating metaphor for a lot of stuff. But the interesting thing is I started writing this book before Trump was president. So I just thought it was a picturesque, <laughs> a picturesque beginning, but it's taken on more metaphorical weight, I think. Oh, yeah. This party is the setting where you imagine your grandfather, Isidore Strauss, meets Lucille Ball. What are her impressions of him? Uh, she is drawn to his normality, I think. This is the time when she and her husband, Desi, are trying to get a television show. And, you know, I think people forget or maybe didn't even know how she almost didn't become the figure we know her as now. Lucille Ball was the most famous woman in America, and at that time, probably the most famous woman in the history of America. But she almost didn't get to be that. She was a failure at that point. She had tried since she was 16 to be a big star. She lived in upstate New York and, and ran away from home when she was in high school and went to New York City to become a celebrity and was sent home and told, you're not very talented, you're not very pretty, go home, give it up. And she kept coming back and she never really made it in New York. And then she went out to Los Angeles and she never really made it there. She became a B-movie actress and had some success at that for a while, but then was fired by RKO and then fired by MGM. And so television really was her last shot. And so this is when the book opens too. She is trying to convince CBS to give her a television show and she's trying to convince them to let her do it with her husband as the lead. And that was a risky proposition because it, this is 1949, 1950, and he, was Cuban and she was a white redhead and the network did not want to take a risk on that. They thought, well, this is something America will not, white America, I should say, will not accept. And so she wanted to prove them wrong. She wanted to say, you know, America is not as bigoted as you feel. And so let's give it a shot. And so that's when the book opened. And the reason I think she was drawn to my grandfather's normality in the book is the reason, the reason she wanted to do the show with Desi was not a high-minded bid for equality. She knew that if she didn't do the show with him, he would cheat on her because he was a, an inveterate philanderer. And so she said, the only way I can keep my marriage afloat is if I'm with him all the time. And so he needs to be my husband on the show. And it didn't work, even though he did manage to be cast as her husband. And it was a great proof that America was ready for an interracial marriage. He still cheated on her. It's so sad, and yet she still wanted to save the marriage. And as you say, this show was her attempt, her last attempt to try and do that. I'm curious, Darren, because you talk about it as interracial. I don't think of Cuban as interracial, and I mean, there are proud Afro-Cubans. Desi Arnaz was clearly of Spanish descent, and yet was it because of narrowness and a perception of whiteness at the time that they were considered interracial? 
I think that's a very good and important point. Thank you. Yes, I, I mean, today they would not be considered interracial, but I guess that is probably proof of how malleable the concept of race is. In 1950 and 51, when the show aired, it was a huge deal that he was Cuban and it was thought of as interracial and it was controversial and CBS did not want to take a shot at it. They actually had cast someone named Richard Denning as her husband, a blonde, waspy guy. And that was what they thought America would be able to handle. Wow. So in addition to her impression of your grandfather as normal, stable, you write him as a really good-looking, sexy guy. Was, <laughs> was he in real life? Um, you know, uh, there's a family resemblance, so I'm not sure that I'm, not, <laughs> I'm the best person to, to answer that. I, I think he was very appealing. Uh, but I don't think he, he did not have matinee looks, certainly, matinee idol looks. He was very broad-chested. He had very strong shoulders. He, he also was the son of immigrants himself and Jewish and, and looked, I think, that way. And that's something that she thinks about in the book as well. She actually had a number of Jewish boyfriends before Desi, so I, I don't know if that was coincidence or what. The book is, in a way, an examination of, of my grandfather, because I find him a very complicated guy. He was very beloved in my family, even though he did things that would normally not lead someone to be beloved. He abandoned my grandmother. She was an alcoholic, my grandmother, and he left her for her best friend. And she spent the last 30 years of her life a hermit, basically. But she still referred to him as her husband, even on her deathbed. And I was there when she died. And uh, one of the saddest things I've ever seen in, in real life was uh, my grandmother talking to a nurse about her husband right before she died. And I knew, and everyone in the room except for the nurse knew that the guy she was talking about her, as her husband was living at that moment with her best friend and had been basically divorced from her in every, in every sense, but legally for three decades. So you have a whole lot to unpack here, and you've done it in multiple layers. I said at the beginning that you described this as half memoir, half make-believe, and yet above all, a novel. Would you talk a bit about the structure, just a little bit about how you move from fiction to memoir. Yes, yeah, yeah, I I think it's worth explaining the book a little bit. So thank you. So the book is basically a family memoir, the story of my grandfather, and he's named and it's nonfiction. And it's also a sort of biography of Lucille Ball's golden period. And I did a great deal of research and really came to fall in love with her myself. And then it's the story of their fictional affair. I mean, they did, I believe, meet at this party. And then my grandfather was unfaithful to my grandmother. And so I, I took a bunch of liberties. <laughs> and Random House asked me to be very clear that, you know, they, there's no evidence that they had an actual affair. But I wanted to write this book because, in a way, I really wanted to tell the story of Lucille Ball. Because I, as I mentioned a little bit, I think she's just a fascinating woman. Not only was she the most famous woman of her time, and of a level of fame that is hard to fathom today. 
her show was eight times more popular than the most popular show today. So the most, most popular broadcast show today is NCIS, which gets about 8 million viewers a week. She got the equivalent of 85 million viewers a week. So if you think about that, that's just an incredible amount of fame. Her show was so popular that when the show would break for commercial in all the big cities, and this was measured in New York City, in Detroit, in Boston, the water table would drop. Because the entire city would go to the bathroom at the same time. And America flushing as one, you know, that's an incredible power. So there's that. But also she was this sort of pre-feminist icon in a way. She was the first woman mogul. She greenlit shows that no one else would take a chance on that became iconic themselves. Star Trek, that was her show. Mission Impossible. The Untouchables, all of these were because she said, yeah, let's take a chance on that. So I thought, you know, I wanted to tell this story. But I also thought if you tell it as a biography, it doesn't really get it what it's like to be her. So, you know, with all due respect, I read a bunch of biographies and they were all well done, but I didn't find them that interesting because they can tell you that fact about the water table. And they can say on October 19th, 1951, the show aired on Monday night at 9 p.m. But they're bound by what can be verified. And, and Lucille Ball was a very withholding person. So she didn't really talk about what it's like to be that famous or what it was like to be this powerful woman whose husband betrayed her publicly. So I thought, okay, I can do what a novel can do. I can take liberties and if I do a good job, explain what it's like to be her. But then I thought it's more interesting than a novel too, in a way, because when you write a novel and I've written a few, you always ask yourself, is this character compelling? Would this make sense? So I thought, well, if I take a very compelling character and a story that I know makes sense because it happened and I, and I make it fictional, then I can have the best of both worlds. It can be the most fun, the most revealing way I could tell the story. Author Darren Strauss discussing his new novel, The Queen of Tuesday, A Lucille Ball Story. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. Stay with us on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my interview with Darren Strauss. The award-winning author is discussing his new novel, The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. I think that part of the reason this sort of historical novel or an imagined situation with a real-life character works 
is indeed what you believe about the power of fiction, that nonfiction can give you facts, but with fiction, you can, you can approach truth. Yes, exactly. And I think there's a, there's a reason that, for example, if you want to find out what it was like in Napoleonic Russia, for example, you don't go back and read some history from that period necessarily, or a newspaper from that period, even though that would be the truth, you'd, you'll, you'd read War and Peace because that tells you, it gives you a sort of texture of what life was like back then. And so I think that if you can mix truth and literature, then you can sort of give the reader kind of full dress experience where they get everything. You know, you, you can read this book, hopefully, and learn what you would learn from a biography, but then you can also get the literary um, experience of getting in a person's head and, and feeling, at, feeling what it's like to be that person and, and seeing the marriage dramatized in a way that a biographer couldn't do. Their immediate attraction, Isidore and Lucille, I keep calling her Lucille rather than Lucy because, at least in the book, you say that no one ever called her Lucy in real life. Is that true? I think that she would go back and forth on this, but there was a period. I mean, she, she embraced it later in life when she wrote about herself. Uh, she would talk about it as Lucy, but I think that was a sort of a gift to the fans. When the show aired at first, I think she was very aware of there's Lucy, and that's the woman on air. There's Lucy Ricardo, and then there's Lucille Ball, who's me. And I, I think that the, the relationship between the two is very interesting and very complicated and very sophisticated in a way we don't think of 1950s TV. Because, I mean, it's a show about a woman who wants to become famous and is in her husband's shadow and she wants to be in show business. And then there's Lucille Ball who always wanted to be in show business and yet was the most famous woman in the world, but for years tried to do that and, and uh, would bang up against her limitations of her talent. I mean, she said famously, I don't really know why I'm so popular. I'm not a great actress. I'm not funny on my own. I can't write jokes. I'm not the prettiest. I'm not a, a good dancer. I'm not a good singer. I mean, I think she actually was quite beautiful, but uh, she would say that about herself. And, and remember, this is a even more uh, sexist time. So looks were even more important back then for, for an actress. So yeah, she was very hyper aware of her looks. But it's interesting. I think why she was famous was there's something about her striving that was winning for people that was charismatic. She wanted to be famous really badly. And that's what she dramatized in the show. I mean, Lucy... McGillicuddy slash Ricardo wanted to be famous, and that was her sort of goal in life. Oh, but she was a great comic actress, even if she didn't see herself primarily as that. I mean, look at the impact on brilliant comic actresses since. I mean, Gilda Ratner would be the first to come to mind. Yeah, I mean, I watched a lot of the show, and... and was filled with admiration for her. I actually just put on Facebook, there's a, there, there are the famous episodes with the chocolate where she's eating the chocolates and, uh, and stomping on grapes. But there's one where she's in a ballet studio and she can't get her leg off the dance bar on the wall. And I just thought it was a brilliant bit of comic acting. I mean, she is, yeah, she's a great, great comic actress. And she, you know, she studied with Keaton and, uh, and Harpo Marx and she paid them back by having them on her shows. 
Yeah, there's a generosity about her that comes through in your portrayal and integrity. When she meets Isidore, their immediate attraction results in a kiss. Neither has ever been unfaithful to their spouse. In fact, Isidore doesn't think he's cut out to be a heartbreaker, but rather a heart mender, as you write. Still, their passion is genuine. What does each provide the other beyond that initial spark as the story develops? Thank you. That was a really great introduction to their relationship. I think that she is looking for someone who's not Desi, and Desi was a very dashing celebrity, but, you know, a a non-stable presence in her life. And so I think she looks at this normal person uh, and thinks that might be a seductive life. And I thought it was sort of a comic ironic in a way that someone who is famous as she is would look at this normal suburban guy and think that's a really seductive lifestyle. And for Isidore in the book, I thought, you know, I wanted to examine fame uh, and what it does. And I think that there's something warping about fame. And I think we, we're living with that now in this country, that how fame and our obsession with fame is so damaging. I think in this book, Isidore had a fairly good marriage. I mean, it had issues, but it was a fairly good marriage. But he, well, he couldn't survive this brush with glamour. I mean, if you're a normal guy and you meet and kiss Lucille Ball when she's this incredibly charismatic, famous person. How do you deal with that? And you try to forget it and live your life, but she is in your life every Tuesday at 9 p.m. when you turn on the TV. So I thought, you know, that would be a sort of damaging thing for somebody. My grandfather in, in the book and in real life had wanted to be a writer. And I think that's why I became a writer, because I always knew that. he. His father came to America with nothing and then built up this real estate business that was very successful. That's why he knew Trump's father. And my grandfather wanted to be a poet. And and his father said, no, you have to take over the business. And so he did. And I I say (laughs) that he has an incredible skill, my grandfather. He's the only one I know who could inherit a number of Manhattan sky rises and still end up broke. (laughs) He just yearned to be... A starving artist. Well, not a good businessman, and so, so I think his wanting to be an artist and then having this brush with greatness was very damaging to his life. But I love Isidore's thoughts on his backstage moment in Lucille's dressing room, and I'm quoting here: "This backstage moment is literature." and cinema is the American songbook, is boffo footage, reaction shots and shadows, is delicious agony and flames that flicker. It's all the dreams of romantic deceit to be found in the modern savoir faire. Is that you writing or your grandfather, Darren? Oh, it's all me. It's all my writing. I mean... <laughs> no, I, I realize that, but... It's gorgeous writing. Do you think he had the talent to perceive something that way? Well, thank you for that. That's that's very nice of you to say. I uh, 
Well, that's the sort of heartbreaking thing. So after he died, I was shown a bunch of his writing, and I don't think uh, this is painful to say. I don't think it was that good. It doesn't feel fair to him to say that. It feels almost disloyal to say it, but it's the truth. And I, and you know, I can only say that maybe he never got the chance to work on it because it wasn't that good. But you know, uh, I think that talent is is sort of a myth in a way. I mean, I teach writing at New York University, and I feel like anyone who works at something can get good at it. So. So maybe he would have become a good writer, but he wasn't a great writer, really. The Arnassus accepted an absurdly small salary in exchange for 100% ownership of I Love Lucy film prints and negatives on the condition that the pilot never air. And instead, episode two became episode one. What were the innovations, the firsts, about the first episode of the Isle of Lucy show that America saw? Oh, well, there are many. I mean, she, well, from a business point of view, like you said, no one had asked for those things. No one even thought those things mattered. So CBS said, sure, you can have all the rights to all this stuff because what are you going to do with it? One of the uh, innovations that they came up with was the rerun. So when Lucille Ball was pregnant, CBS said, what are we going to do? You know, we, we run 52 new episodes a year of things. And Desi and Lucy said, why don't you just run old episodes? We actually have them recorded. And CBS thought, no one's going to go for that, but okay. And then they did go for it. And so it totally changed the industry. Now, you know, TV shows now do 10 episodes a year on cable. They had to do 52 a year. Until Lucille said, well, and Desi, I have to give him credit, said, let's try this other thing. Desi said, we should do three cameras and a live audience, which is how sitcoms are generally done. And that was only because Lucille said, I want to perform in front of an audience. I'm not as funny if there's no one watching. So that was an innovation. The way they recorded it, they said, the reason that TV shows are in Los Angeles now is because of them. TV was filmed in New York and Lucille had failed in New York and didn't want to move back. And so said, well, we'll just film it and send it across the country to New York. So that's why they're filmed in high quality video. If you look at other shows from that era, they look terrible because they were just straight to video uh, and the cameras weren't as good. So, you know, if you look at like Playhouse Theater, I can't remember what the show is called, uh, all those sort of live shows that were dramas from that era, they look terrible. But I Love Lucy looks great and can be shown as a rerun. Because it was filmed on cinema quality film. Yes, and, and then mailed across country. Shows were often done live and that the technology wasn't so good for that back then. So you'll notice if you look at shows from 1950, they often look really wobbly, the colors are, are, are bad, but a I Love Lucy episode looks like a a movie from that era, you know, beautiful, high-quality black and white. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the acclaimed author Darren Strauss. We've been discussing his new novel, The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. Though fiction... Strauss did a lot of research on the actress, and I asked him what impact 
the immediate and phenomenal success of I Love Lucy had on Lucille Ball as a person? I think it was gratifying for her. I mean, she had wanted this fame forever. And, you know, she got famous at 40, but she had worked at it since she was 16, which is a very long time to keep failing. And the fame was such that no one had really prepared for it. There wasn't that kind of fame before. So no one even knew if television would work. It was thought to be the poor stepchild of, uh, of entertainment. It was below radio. So there was film, and then there was radio, and then there was TV. And so I, in the books, have Lucille think, well, I guess I'll give it a shot. Even that flickering appliance is better than unemployment. So no one thought it could work. But then once it worked, it was revelatory because it was in every home. So her sort of fame was as big as any movie star, but also much more intimate. So people felt a connection to her that they hadn't felt to say Cary Grant, because Cary Grant seemed like this glamorous movie star, whereas Lucille Ball seemed like your neighbor or your friend. And so the love that America felt for her was, I think, unprecedented. (laughs) Indeed, you write about that intimacy and that movies are epic or heroic, but TV has the intimacy because those people are in your living room. Exactly. Knowing what a phenomenon the I Love Lucy show became, it's interesting to be taken back to 1949 and 50 and learn the rejection that Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz face trying to pitch the idea. Would you elaborate on that? We. We've mentioned the disapproval of his ethnicity, but what else did the executives just not get? I think they didn't understand her appeal because, as I said, you know, she was a very specialized talent. She was a great comic actress, as you said, but she needed good writing. She didn't do that herself. She was... 40 years old, and they were looking for young starlets. She was not a singer, not a dancer. They had to be talked into her stardom. They didn't want to give her the show. And I think that that is profoundly not getting it, because once given the right alchemy of sources, you know, this great writing, this, this husband, the show was, as we said, unprecedented. I also think they didn't realize that America wanted to be reflected. They were... I say in the book, they were kind of America's marriage. They were uh, the husband and wife that stood in for all husbands and wives. There weren't sort of uh, relatable marriages like that. You know, there was was the Honeymooners, which was around the same time. That was kind of a more specialized thing. That was not a really loving marriage. (laughs) He talked about wanting to smack her, uh, Ralph Cramden. So, you know, it was just a regular loving marriage. And I think that that also was a template for television that, okay, if we have a a regular loving family, then that will feel like uh, a representation of the American family. And that's why it was so shocking to America when they got divorced. It was kind of like when the Beatles broke up. They were so popular that and beloved that they had wedding sets, they had pajamas, they, I mean, kitchen dinette sets that people bought things to make their lives like Lucy and Desi. And then all of a sudden, 
they're divorced. And it was a, it was a shock. It, their last kiss, and this is true, Lucille and Desi's last kiss was on camera. It was the last scene of the last episode of their last show. And then they divorced the next day. Mm. There's a part of the book where you compare actresses of the time period of I Love Lucy to ice cream. Darren, would you turn to page 63? Sure, yes, thank you. I'll, I'll get that here, yes, okay. An actress is a kind of Baskin-Robbins franchise of smiles. Every movie actress in 1950 needed the soggy-eyed, mournful smile and the shut-lipped smile that make love to me, another requisite, right behind being leggy. Some varieties were particular to certain women. Lucille's smile came in six flavors. Betty Davis smiled in eight flavors, damn her, and Betty wasn't even a smiler. Kate Hepburn could pull 12. After tiny to big parts in more than 70 movies, Lucille had found her trademark, the I know something you don't comical smile, teeth showing, eyeballs up and looking to the side. This was a Harpo Marx deal, but nobody realized this and wouldn't for five years when she'd graciously invite that mop-headed genius and has been to appear on TV. More than her unequally thick lips, Lucille's giant moon eyes decided all her smile flavors. At this moment, she was working the simple gratitude smile. Roses, she said to her fans, how sweet, thank you. She laid the flowers aside immediately for her maid, Clara, who would get them later, but it was true. Lucille loved roses, she loved the autographs and the post-show jostle, and her fans she loved most of all. Chapters five and six are memoir chapters. They're set in your grandfather's hospital room. What did he give you? Well, in the book, uh, he gave me something that he wrote with Lucille, a sort of memento, trying, uh, and, and said to me, take this and try to make something out of it. That is not something that happened in real life. <laughs> I, I, yes, I know. I, I wanted that to be sort of a symbolic representation. And I only realized this as I'm saying it now of what he gave to me in real life, which is he couldn't make it as a writer and said to me, you should do it. And so I guess that's the dramatization of that moment. But that really did happen. I mean, my grandfather died right before my first book was sold, which is a heartbreaker to me because I, he really supported me and wanted me to become a successful writer and died right before that first novel was sold. But he knew that I'd written it and he, he knew that it was about to happen, I think. So that was, that was gratifying. He gave you that gift of encouragement, a permission that his father didn't give him. Exactly. And I think, you know, it ruined, it ruined his father's business. Like his father, as I said, was a very successful businessman and his son, my grandfather, drove that business to the, into the dirt. And, you know, if he had given it to other people, maybe the business would have thrived. My, my grandfather's children were in real estate too, my father and my uncle. And we're quite good at it. And so if my grandfather had trusted them, maybe that, that would have worked. I mean, there's all this stuff that my grandfather, again, is beloved of my family, even though he did these things that are sort of unforgivable. He left my grandmother, as I said, and abandoned her. And she never, ever was really angry at him. She loved him uh, despite that. My father 
should have, you know, could have inherited this business that really would have benefited him. And my grandfather didn't trust him with it. And then the business foundered. And, uh, and I'm sure my father and I and my whole family could have used that money if that had worked out. But my father still is very loyal to my grandfather, even though he didn't trust him with that. So there's something about my grandfather that was very charming and, and people forgave him all kinds of stuff. Hmm. Would you tell us the story that Isidore wanted to adapt to film, the story in the book, The Queen of Tuesday? Yeah, there's a, there's a great old novel, one of the first novels from ancient Greece called The March of the 10,000. In that novel, the Greek army is in Persia and all the Greek leaders <clears throat> excuse me, are murdered. And so there are 10,000 men and they have to march across Persia to get to their boats. And they elect this guy who's not a leader to lead them. And so it's the story of this non-professional soldier just becoming a leader. And it's a great action story. So I thought it would be sort of interesting to tell that story in America. So in the Civil War, there were a number of, of troops who were freed slaves. And so I thought it'd be interesting if there was a black unit, which you know there were a number of black units, but they had white leadership. And if those leaders were killed, and there are, there are a group of ex-slaves trapped in the Confederacy who have to march north, and they're led by this African-American man, and he marches them north to, to freedom through the Old South. And so that, I thought, would be a, a sort of analog to that old story. And I, and I wanted that to be the story that Lucille and, and my grandfather told, because my grandfather had loved that book. Oh, wow. And Lucille sees it as a corrective to Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I think that she at first is nervous about being able to tell the story. And it's sort of like what happened with Desi and her in that she thinks America isn't ready to accept that. But but then she comes to realize it would be a good story. And so she and my grandfather do sort of at least discuss collaborating on this on this idea. In addition to the Isidore Lucille story and your autobiographical chapters, you give us a vivid, detailed depiction of mid-20th century life for well-to-do assimilated New York Jewish families. And because family life was so different for non-working women, the life of Harriet, Isidore's wife, and also the name of your grandmother, her life is defined by her role as a wife and mother. This is how it was. Unlike Desi, she is neither cruel nor selfish, but Isidore asks himself if his life is utterly beside the point. What becomes of Harriet, and how did writing about Harriet change your view of your grandmother? Well, that's a great question, Lois, and thank you for saying that about my grandmother. I mean, what was interesting to me was I set out to write the story of my grandfather and Lucille Ball, and then I realized as I wrote it how unfair life was to my grandmother back then, how unfair the times were to my grandmother and my grandfather was to her. And so she became the hero of the book. 
And only at the end did she sort of take over the story. And I realized how angry I was at my grandfather and how much I had sort of failed to see my grandmother's story. And so she sort of grabbed the book by the lapels and said, okay, I'm going to tell this story now. Or I'm going to be the hero of this story, the, the lead character. So she, I think, in the end is the one sort of unsullied person, the one sort of... Uh, true moral being in this book. How old were you when she died? I was, uh, I'm guessing, 30 or 31. So I, I got to know her pretty well. And did you, I mean, you state in the book that you saw her as this disagreeable, ill-tempered alcoholic. Did she soften or did your opinion of her soften? with age? Well, so what happened was, the reason I think I loved my grandfather, because he is more than her at the beginning of of my life, was because, yes, he had left her and was living with her best friend (laughs) in sin, you might say, but he was charming and sweet, and she was a very curmudgeonly drunk, as you mentioned. But then, as she got older, uh, she broke her hip and had to be hospitalized, and in the hospital, was forced to go into withdrawal and she, she stopped drinking and came out and never drank again. I mean, her life was really sort of ruined at that point because she had been a hermit for many years, but she was a much nicer person after that. And I did, I did come to, to know her better and, and feel very close to her. Hmm. Lucille and Desi finally divorced in 1960. How did she cope with life after I Love Lucy. She tried in many ways to replicate that success without Desi, and she couldn't. I mean, there there was something about their union that was powerful to people. She did two television shows, three television shows, actually, if you count the one she did in 1986. She did two television shows that were successful in the 60s and 70s, but they were not nearly as good or as magically successful. Although, you know, she did have a number one show a few times after that. But, but really, it was, it was Desi that made her successful, I think. Their, their union was, was something that sort of uh, exploded off the screen. But she tried to replicate that in her personal life, too. She married uh, a stand-up comedian, Gary Morton. Uh, Jewish. Jewish guy, yes. <laughs> um, but he was really not someone she loved as much as she loved Desi. It was fascinating to read her talk about that. She would say, as she was married to Gary, yeah, I don't really, you know, he's not the love of my life, but, you know, it's stable. And, you know, I thought that was fascinating. She, She always sort of admitted that the real love of her life was Desi. And the same for Desi. He married someone who looked just like Lucille Ball, and would talk about her as the great love of his life. They just couldn't live together. You know, he, Desi produced a Broadway show for her after they divorced. They would visit in the hospital when she was hurt. He came to visit her in the hospital. I mean, their romance was really something special. It was intense and fraught and, and never ending, really. Wild Cat was the Broadway musical she appeared in right after the divorce. Did he produce that? He did. So actually, so actually uh, having become sort of a lay expert in Lucille, 
I've written a bunch of articles in the last couple of weeks about her just because people have asked me about the book, you know. So the, for the New York Times, there wrote an article about Wildcat and how it failed. So after her incredible success, which we've talked about, she said, I'm going to try to make it in New York City. I always failed there, and I want to show that I can be a Broadway star. So in 1960, after 10 years of being the biggest star in the world, she went to Broadway and kind of failed there again, put on this show that was produced by Desi after they divorced. They divorced in 1960, and then Desi produced this show for her. I thought that it had good reviews. No, God, no. Um, no, it was terrible. I mean, it was successful commercially, but she couldn't do it because she was 50-something at that point, and it was a show for uh, a 22-year-old. Oh, wait, I have to tell you, my seven-year-old self... <laughs> saw that show. I, I, it was my first visit to New York, and uh, my parents took me to some Broadway shows, and that was the first. She sang Hey, Look Me Over, and I thought I was in heaven because I knew the I Love Lucy show from reruns. I didn't know. I'll tell you why the reviews are bad. She, she passed out three times. She broke her leg. I mean, she just couldn't physically do it. But also, she was not able to memorize the lines, and so she would ad-lib, which would drive the producers and, the, and this playwright crazy. She would just forget her lines and look to the crowd and say, well, you know, what are you going to do? I'm a TV star, and the audience would love it. But that's not what you do on Broadway, you know? Okay, so- my seven-year-old self, nor my parents. We, didn't, we must have seen her on a good night or just didn't pick up on that. The last sentence of the Queen of Tuesday is, a work of imagination wasn't the book I needed to write. This was. Why was this not a work of imagination, Darren? It seems tremendously imaginative. Well, I think that was sort of the protagonist saying (laughs) he wasn't gonna write a novel, he was gonna write a biography of his grandfather, but that's, I guess, in a way, a wink at the reader, uh, because the the book is a work of imagination. It's 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 more of a hybrid book than 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 the narrator admits at that moment. But I wanted the book really to be a great and complicated love story because I feel like so many novels and movies about love, uh, contemporary movies about love, don't really get it the complexity of it. I mean, I read Love in the Time of Cholera, and I wanted to write a book like that where we don't even know is it love is it obsession is it based on fame is it based on something deeper I felt like you know love is such a complicated thing that I wanted to really get into that at that end he's sort of looking back and saying I'm going to write the story of this great true love award-winning author Darren Strauss his new book is the Queen of Tuesday a Lucille Ball story Now, a contemporary comedian, actress, and writer. You may know Phoebe Robinson as host of the retired podcast Two Dope Queens, which later became an HBO TV show. Robinson is also the author of two best-selling books, and she developed another dope podcast of her own, 
called So Many White Guys. In addition to touring with her stand-up, she found time to moderate Michelle Obama's becoming book tour events in the U.S. and Europe. I spoke with Phoebe Robinson late in 2018 while she was in Atlanta on her own book tour. Early in Everything's Trash But It's Okay, you quote your loving parents as saying, what are you talking (laughs) about? But... (laughs) This language has evolved. We're going to listen to a few examples. First, here's a clip of you talking with Stephen Colbert about Mm. the term zaddy. (laughs) You taught me the term zaddy. Uh Okay. And you said that I, I might be possibly be a zaddy. Yes. Okay. You're a zaddy. You are like, I pay all my bills on time, zaddy. You know, with the clean-shaven look. That's boring, Zaddy. No, that's, that's the most great. Boring, you can afford stable. Netflix and Hulu. You're a good Zaddy. <laughs> Come on. That's... So I'm, am I a sugar Zaddy? Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, Stephen Colbert, pretty high up there yeah. in the world of comedy and popular culture. Here's an excerpt from your interview with Jimmy Fallon on your latest <laughs> lingo abbreviation. Um, I say soups monogs for super monogamous. Oh, soups yeah. monogs. Yeah, soups monogs. Soups monogs. It sounds like you're just eating alone at a diner, like soups monogs, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah. super monogamous, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then my final one is a nickname I have for my new best friend. I don't know if you heard about it. Yes, uh, I did hear. Mish for Michelle Obama. Oh, that's your new best friend. That's oh. my new best friend. Did- Okay, your latest abreves <laughs> and your new best friend, the finale, the grand finale of Two Dope Queens podcast was with a queen herself, yeah, First Lady Michelle Obama. And again, going back to this ease and comfort you seem to have with these very accomplished people. You make them feel comfortable immediately. I love how you started off with Mrs. Obama asking if you could call her Mishy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I here's the thing. Like, first of all, when her team called and said, we want Phoebe and Jessica to interview her, Jess and I were kind of like, oh, this is real. Like, we just, we always joked about Michelle listening to the podcast. We were like, she's so busy. Like, of course she wouldn't. And then we're like, oh, this is, like, for real. And so when we got the manuscript, like, I probably spent, like, three days preparing for that interview because I was, like, so nervous. And I was like, I want to get this right. These are only, they told us we were only going to have 20 minutes with her. So Jess and I were like, well, we got to make sure we get, like, all the right stuff going. And then when we got there and she was just so warm and lovely, it was just kind of, I think it made us relax and be like, oh, yeah, like, yes, she's this icon and, you know, public service is, like, her calling in life, but she's just another person and really made us relax. And we ended up talking to her for 40 minutes because she was having so much fun, and it really made us feel like, okay, we did a good job. If Michelle Obama's going to, like, double her time, she's not someone who is lazy or has pockets of time that's open. So the fact that she gave us that extra time made us feel like we did a really good job. In listening to that conversation with Michelle Obama, 
one of the things that I loved most was you asked her about having black hair in the White House. Mm-hmm. Okay, Phoebe, do you have any idea <laughs> what journalists, what impressive authors and world leaders racked their brains about yeah. <laughs> asking her? And how completely enthralled she was with that question. I mean, she gave it a lengthy answer. Yeah. I mean, I think it really speaks back to, you know, Jess and I coming up in Hollywood, and we know that, in general for women, like your public appearance means more than this should. Like, it will determine if you get hired for a job or not. And then I think with black women and their hair, it's even more the case. And so we were wondering, like, being in the White House with the biggest spotlight where you can't make a mistake, you can't have a bad hair day, you can't wear, like, an ugly outfit because you'll get ripped to shreds, like, how she was able to deal with that pressure but still be able to do what she came here to do because she wasn't there to be a hair model. She was there to help change lives, which is what she's done. And we just were like... there's no way I could be a first lady. Like, there's just so much pressure. It's so hard. Like, you don't get a moment to breathe. And so we were just so fascinated that she always did everything with grace and just was so well composed. And we're like, girl, give us a secret. Our favorite dope queen, Phoebe Robinson, talking about her special rapport with the former first lady, Michelle Obama. Two Dope Queens is still available for streaming on HBO. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.